Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have a special guest with us. Um, Jessica is a woman who I met online who has who has a story, and I think it involves a little bit of insanity because people talk to us about things when they see us, and wow, don't you know what causes all those kids? And I always smile and go, um, I do actually. I found out it's paperwork. Lots of paperwork is what causes those kids. <laughs> But I very rarely meet somebody who has who has caught up with us with seven kids or even surpassed us. And Jessica has like like nine. And my gosh, I can't imagine what that's like. So Jessica, we want to talk to you about that today. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. How are you guys today? Not too bad. It's awesome to have you here. Yes, I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, we're glad to have you on here because... We've talked about a lot of these topics, but some of them really bear repeating. One of the things that we talk about a lot is keeping bio siblings together whenever possible. And you guys have done that with a sibling group of seven. Yes, I said seven. I can't imagine <laughs> having seven kids added at once <laughs> or even in stages. Yeah, because we have seven total. And it took yeah. us almost 20 years to get there. We sprinkled seven over 20 years. You did not sprinkle them like that. <laughs> no, not at all. We went from that one to eight overnight. One to um, eight. That's a jump. <laughs> it was a jump. And, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, when you have two, you kind of learn how to juggle. And then you have three. And it's like, we didn't get that, like, learn to juggle opportunity. It was just kind of good luck. You know, here you go. Strolling to sprinting. Pretty much. Uh, I would say full out running, not even sprinting. I would say full out running. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was quite the journey, honestly. But the hardest part, I think, adding the seven was going from our youngest was a toddler. So it was going from a toddler to all the way from teenagers down to school age kids and figuring out school and you know, like I said, teenagers, good gracious teenagers. Um, (laughs) they're fun yeah that was that was the hardest part we always tell people you know the one to eight wasn't too bad it was the learning how to do school and like you know school supply shopping and open houses and all that fun stuff and then dealing with a teenager when I wasn't much older than her at the time so um that was definitely the hardest part of it oh I bet I bet now me and Amanda have shared our story in here quite a few times with people but what was your introduction into foster care? Like why, what drew you in? Was this your idea, your husband's idea? What made you guys feel like that was the right move for you? Sure. So I grew up um, with my parents up in New York and they were foster parents for most of my life. Um, They, we've had tons and tons of kids, a lot of sibling groups um, who've come in and out of our house. And then once they, stopped being foster parents up in New York. They actually applied to be house parents at a children's home down in Florida. And so they got that job and 
they became, it, I don't know if you're familiar with house parents, but there was like a campus with multiple houses on it. And my parents would go in for 10 days and then they'd be off for seven or five, depending on the situation. And they would, you know, be foster parents for a temporary amount of time. Um, and so they did that my senior year of high school, we moved down to Florida and they did that. Um, so I kind of grew up around it and I always knew that I wanted to adopt eventually. Um, my husband did not grow up around any of that at all. Um, not even like kind of sort of familiar with it. However, he knew that that was something he wanted to do when he had kids. And so on our first date, um, he actually told me that he wanted 10 kids and he wanted most of them to be adopted. Um, which of course I should have been like, but he had never even held a baby ever. And so I was like, eh, you'll have one and you'll be like, okay, we're good. Um, <laughs> that ended up not being the case. But, you know, if there, I mean, I was okay with it. I grew up with lots of kids in the house all the time. So that didn't scare me at all. And I knew what the need for, for foster and adoptive parents was. So, um, yeah. How many kids do you think came to your parents' home when you lived there? I can clearly remember, I can clearly remember probably about 15. Um, however, I know that there were some that I, obviously I don't remember. Um, and I, there was a sibling group of nine, um, that we only got five of, and then they separated the other ones into other homes. Um, so yeah, I would say probably 15 that I remember. Um, but they always had them for a long time. It was never, we never really had like short placements. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> Cause we've had, we've had everything from a year and a half down to a day. Wow. A day. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, that particular one, I think turned out, um, they were looking for some bio placements, you know, some, some family members and they were able to find them the next day. So they just stayed with us. Two little kids stayed with us for, I think one, one night and part of the next day. So yeah. it was wow. a short term deal, but wow. That's, I mean, how did that affect you growing up? Do you think, you know, did that, did that affect you in positive ways, negative ways? I mean, obviously probably a little bit of both, but, but when you look back as an adult, how do you think that changed your childhood? Sure. That's something that, um, you know, I do a lot of panels. Uh, I work with an organization called Love One and they do like foster care panels at the end of impact classes. And so I do a lot of panels and that's one question that gets asked a lot is like, you know, how's this going to affect my kids? You know, how's this going to affect my bio children? And, and I always like to share with people, like, I think that I am the person I am today because of my parents being foster parents. I, I, you know, I know that I did not grow up naive. I didn't grow up thinking that everything was sunshine and rainbows. You know, I grew up knowing that there were kids in my own backyard who were, you know, going through really terrible situations. Some of them were starving. Some of them were being neglected, you know. Um, and so I think that ultimately changed my outlook on, you know, having more compassion for people, knowing that, you know, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors and, you don't know what situations people are going through. Um, and so I always kind of, you know, I, I always kind of just had that outlook knowing that my parents were experiencing these things with these kids. Um, it also made me grow up quite quickly, which I know my mom looks back and she's like, I kind of wish you didn't grow up so fast, but 
I'm glad I did because, you know, I was able to make an impact at a younger age. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to wait until I matured, you know, to make an impact. And, um, it kind of helped me to be a, I guess a more outspoken voice for foster care at a younger age. So, um, all positive things. I can't, there was nothing negative that affected me, um, with my parents being foster parents. Well, that's interesting because when we talk with our own bio kids, you know, we'll get some, some different, you know, thoughts about it. You know, one son has, has talked about the difficulty of seeing kids come and go. And I know you said that most of the kids stayed there for a long time. Mm-hmm. But well, and we had a, we had a few long-term placements that were, was really hard on our children when yeah. we left, but we've also had a few of our children that have expressed, you know, when they get older and they start their family that, you know, they want to, they want to explore adoption too. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's kind of gone both ways, but it, it it's, it's definitely hard on our children when it's time to say goodbye. Yeah, that was definitely not easy. I mean, I specifically, there were a few placements that I became very close with. One of them was that sibling group. Um, and we actually had a pretty incredible story of how we reconnected with them years later. We ended up moving like two streets down from them and didn't even know it um, years later and was able to reconnect with her. And so I've been friends. I'm, I still talk to several of the kids that, um, well, they're not kids. They're all older than me, but, um, still talk with several of the people that, um, my parents were foster parents for, um, to this day. And my parents as house parents at the children's home, there are still several of those. Again, I call them kids, but they're like two years younger than me. Um, that we still, they still come to Christmases. They still come to Thanksgivings. Like they're still very much involved in, our lives, even to this day, you know? Um, so yeah, it can be, that part can be hard. And that's definitely something you kind of have to learn. I think with your own kids of how each one reacts, my brother was not one who got attached or anything. Um, so it wasn't really a big deal for him. Um, but I'm more of an emotional person. So it was, it was hard, but worth it. You know, you always, now you can look back and say, well, you know, it was a necessary evil kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds like it really had a lot of impact on forming the person you've become today, especially, you know, well, and I mean, I'm going to back up for a second. I'm not here to say that Facebook is all awesome. We just finished up with a presidential election. And so we can all see the 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 evils of what social media does to us. The craziness. Sure. But it also allows us that space to be able to reconnect with some of those people. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you guys have had a really good connection with a lot of kids and really expanded your family over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I have, um, I have two adopted brothers that came from the children's home that my parents were working at. Um, they adopted them mm, six years ago. So, and then, um, they were actually in the process of adopting another little boy who is two. So they're starting all over again. Um, and, there's been many, many uh, kids who've come through and stayed at their home who aged out of the foster care system and didn't have anywhere to go. Or a lot of girls who became unexpectedly pregnant didn't have anywhere to go. And um, my parents for months, like actually it would probably be a couple of years, really had girl after girl in there that was pregnant and had children. Um, that's actually where my youngest came from. 
was one of those girls looking to uh, give her baby a, an amazing family. And um, yeah, so I mean, it definitely, it definitely has continued to be a thing for our family to stay connected to those that they've had relationships with at the children's home. Wow. So I have to ask with nine kiddos, are you guys done? Are you still foster license open? Are you continuing? What's the plan? We are definitely not done. Um, We definitely want more, whether that's biological or adopt or foster. We would love to foster. Our county is, well, you know, all counties are overrun right now. Um, And we've talked extensively with several of the um, directors here in our county of trying to get our home open. But we just, they won't do it because we have too many kids in the house. So, which is bumming because it's like we have the space and we have the van, you know, we, we have all the things that all the love all the time. Um, but their rules just stipulate that we have too many kids so we can't open our home. But eventually when some of these kids start moving out, um, we'd, we'd love to foster again and hopefully adopt and um, definitely not done. Wow. <laughs> uh, I Yeah. Don't get any ideas, Amanda. <laughs> oh, I always have ideas. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, the- he knows me well. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're in the wrong business if you don't think that that gives you ideas. Right. <laughs> well, uh, of the three of us, I obviously have the most gray going on. And um, I really, really don't want to be the guy sitting at graduation when people say, oh, are you here to see your grandchild? <laughs> and I'm already getting close enough to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I uh, I will be the youngest at my daughter's. I'm sure I'll be the youngest at my at my daughter's graduation, um, which she graduates this year. There's only 11 years difference between her and I, um, so I'm sure I'll be the youngest one there. But then I think about my three year old, like, man, I'm gonna be, you know, I'm not gonna say, it, but I'm 10 years old when she graduates. That seems really old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our oldest, we were young parents at his graduation and our youngest we will be old parents at his graduation right (laughs) (laughs) we will be i'll be knocking on 60 before before frankie graduates so yeah yeah we're looking at but 60 is not that old right yeah my mom my not to not to offend you at all my mom and dad turned 54 this year so they're yeah, so they're, you know, they're starting over with a two-year-old. I'm like, you're going to be, like, <laughs> using walkers to get to his graduation. <laughs> so now you said that there's 11 years between you and your daughter? Mm-hmm, yep. So she, when we first adopted the sibling group, um, she just turned 14. Um, and I was 25 at the time. And so, um, yeah, 25. Yep. I'm 28 now. Yeah, 28 now. So, so a 14 year old girl, I bet you when she walked in, she was totally cool with that. And she's like, I'm going to listen to you all the time because <laughs> you're, you're smarter and wiser than I am, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we knew as soon as they said that there was a teenager in the mix, we were like, okay, like I'm going to have to earn. And, you know, she, she was the oldest of the sibling group and she took care of the younger, the six younger ones for two, three years at the age of 10. And that's Um, common. Yes. And so we knew once, once they said that there was, she was 13 at the time that we met them. But once they said there was a teenager, we knew that she was mama bear 
and I was going to have to earn the kids from her. Um, I was not going to be able to walk in there and be like, I'm mom now. You know, I knew that wasn't going to happen. In fact, the first visitation we ever had with the kids, I wanted to just sit down with her. You know, my husband went off and played with the other kids and I just wanted to sit down with her and, okay, girl, I know you got questions. Bring them at me. What you got? You know, and she did. She asked me a bunch of questions and basically scoping out, are you, are you going to take care of us? You know, what, what do you guys believe about this, that, and the other, you know? Um, Cause she was trying to decide if her kids, as she saw it, were going to be safe where they were going to go, you know? Um, but we knew that was going to happen. I mean, that's pretty, pretty common place, you know, when you adopt a teenager. Um, and of course, being a teenager who took care of her siblings, it did take a long time for the kids to adjust to, okay, she's not the one that takes care of us anymore. She's not the one that's in charge anymore. Cause even when they were, they were in a group home for the whole time that they were in foster care. And so that was nice because all of them lived in one home together, which is rare, you know, but yeah. they, they got to stay together in one home. And so she, even then she still was mama to them. Like they didn't listen to the caregivers as well as they listened to her, you know? Um, and so we had to un, not undo that necessarily, but we definitely had to tread lightly on how to broach that subject of, okay, now the kids are going to need to listen to me because, you know, we're, we got to get into a normalcy of somewhat, but it took years of, of it, of, you know, one getting the kids to understand that, but also of her feeling like she didn't have to be mom anymore. Um, it just took a really long time. Yeah. I mean, you have to earn that trust. You have to mm -hmm. earn that right. Yeah. 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 That's, yep. that's something I think most moms don't understand is earning that right to motherhood is that's a different path that you've taken than most mothers do. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely, that's a, the perfect terminology is earning the right. You, that's exactly what it is. You know, you are, it would be just like if, you know, I tried to let my kids go live with somebody right now, you know, you would have to be a decent enough human being for me to let them go stay with you, you know, and that's kind of where she was scoping us out and making sure that her kids were going to be safe, you know, with us. So over the first couple of years with that, what did that look like for you guys? I would say for the first year, um, we, a lot of the, you know, I, I had to, it was mostly me, you know, because I was mom and the kids gravitated towards my husband immediately because they never had a father figure growing up. And then when they went to this children's home, it was ran completely by women. And there were the only male there was the, um, maintenance man who would try and spend time with them as much as he could, but you know, he had a job. So, um, so they instantly all, if my husband is still kind of that way, if my husband tells them to do something, listens immediately, you know, whereas me, they're like, yeah, we've heard female voices for years, like whatever, you know? <laughs> um, and so for me, it was more of my own personal struggle of not getting upset when the kids would go to her for something or not getting upset when I would ask the kids to do something and they wouldn't do it, but then she would turn around and tell them to do the same thing and then they do it. Um, it was more of an internal thing for me, you know, to get over my pride, get over, you know, how I felt about it 
and just realize that this is only temporary. Eventually we'll get to a spot where the kids will feel comfortable enough and she'll feel comfortable enough. Um, but it was that, you know, I would tell the kids go do something and they wouldn't do it. And she could turn around and say, Hey, go do this. And they would go do it. And it was like, like, why, why can't they, you know, why does she need to say it before you guys listen? You know, um, that was definitely difficult. And then specifically for her, um, because she took care of the kids for so many years, um, they, they didn't have food. They were, they were, there was no food in the house. And so she would have to go down to the corner store and steal food, um, in order to feed them. So she would kind of sneak food in her jacket and whatnot, and then bring it home to feed them. And so we knew that stealing was going to kind of be a thing for her, you know, because she just, it was out of necessity for so many years. And so for the first, probably about two years, we kind of gave her quite a grace of, you know, stealing was like a really tough thing for her. Um, and it, it it would be necessity sometimes, but then it was getting to the point where it wasn't necessity. It was more of a want thing. And so we had to be gracious in saying, okay, this is something that's ingrained in her because she had to do this for so long. And so I would say it was probably two years before we were like, okay, we can't let you use that as an excuse anymore. Now we've got to start taking responsibility for our actions. And now we've got to start moving towards normalcy so to speak quote unquote we always use that word very loosely but Mm -hmm. um normalcy of you know we don't need to steal because everything's provided you know um so yeah that was her biggest struggle i think with that how were you able to regulate your own emotions as you walk through that with her because i know that's that's a big struggle for all parents to learn how to regulate your own emotions when they're when they're kind of off in their head space is there any anything that really helps you figure out how to how to navigate that successfully? Um, so I would say I'm still a work in progress on that. I don't think I'll ever be done working on that. Um, but I think that I've made the most progress on that over the probably the past two years um, of just not being reactive. You know, that's the biggest thing is my kids want to get a reaction out of me. They're not so much anymore, but especially when we first got them, they wanted to get that reaction out of me. And so they would say specific things or do specific things that they knew would really get under my skin or they knew would really hurt um, just so they could see me kind of lose it. Um, Especially my oldest one. She's very good at that. Um, But now I think I've gotten to a place where, Oh, uh Oh, Okay. Sorry. Thought I lost you there for a second. That's all right. Um, now I've kind of gotten to a place where I can hear them say something. And instead of reacting, I can look into it and say, you know, maybe there's something else that happened that I'm not seeing, you know, maybe something happened at school and that's why they came home with this attitude. Or maybe something happened that maybe I said something that triggered them and I didn't realize it. And so just being very open with them, like, hey, did I say something that maybe upset you? You know, did did something happen at school that's kind of set you off? You know, and then just knowing when to give them their space. That was really hard for me because I'm a pro- I'm one of those like problem solving people. And so especially my teenage boys, it's like it, when they get mad, they just want to go in their room and be mad. You know, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to they don't want to sit down and solve it. 
And I would kind of follow them in, into the room and then they would get even more mad. And it's like, well, I just need to know why you're upset. Why are you upset? Why are you upset? And finally I've learned, okay, just let them go cool down. And then usually once they calm down, they'll come out and they'll talk about it, you know? Um, but that's definitely been my learning thing is not reacting and trying to see what the underlying issue is. Cause a lot of times it's not what they think it is. You know, it's not the fact that you told them to clean their room. It's that, I don't know, they, you know, they had a really bad dream last night and they don't want to talk about it because it's really scary. And, you know, and then that's just fuming in them while you told them to go clean their room. And now they're mad because you made them go clean their room. You know what I'm saying? It's just, there's more underlying issues than that. Absolutely. I had a guy much smarter than me once tell me that, that grace resides in the place between anger and response. Mm. And the more time you can put in there, the more grace you can learn to pack into that moment and the better that will become. But I'm just going to say that yeah. guy's smarter than me and he was probably better at it than I am as well. <laughs> like I said, it's still a work in progress. It's still something that, you know, there are times where you just, you know, you, you're, man, I could tell you some doozies of things that have been thrown at me that, uh, how I responded was not how I would have responded. Um, but that's just because mostly the Holy spirit took over and <laughs> answered for me because there was times where I said stuff and I'm like, that's not how I thought that would happen. Um, <laughs> thankfully, because what I would have said would have not been helpful or, you know, developed a relationship with my kids to know that, wow, I really can't come to mom with anything. Cause I came to her with this doozy and she didn't freak out, you know? Um, and so they're more comfortable coming and talking to me about things like that. Right. Now you mentioned, um, the stealing of food. So food was obviously an issue. Have you dealt with food issues, hoarding and things like that? Oh yes. Yeah. We, um, you know, we took all of the, you know, impact classes. They tell you all those neat little, little tricks, like keeping a basket of, uh, you know, fruit on the counter, you know, whatever. Um, we found that we couldn't do that for multiple reasons. Uh, one being that all the fruit would be gone very quickly, like a day. Um, and two, the peels and stuff to that fruit would end up in rooms and whatnot. So um, we, yeah, we dealt with a lot of hoarding of food. Probably the first, my daughter, my, my second oldest is looking at me laughing right now because she knows. <laughs> um, probably like the year first year or so everybody was different times you know because like the younger ones don't remember most of what happened so they don't remember being without food it was mostly my older ones who you know would hide pop tarts or snacks or um you know come out in the middle of the night and grab uh popsicles or whatever you know in the middle of the night and um and but I never wanted to lock food up that was always that was never something that I wanted to be a normalcy thing. So I just kind of had to be like, you know, we'll get past this eventually. The biggest thing was the amount of food that the kids would eat at meals. You yeah. know, when we, when we first got the kids, it would take two giant crock pots of chili to feed them. Um, <laughs> and it would be gone. There'd be no leftovers. Now we make one pot of one crock pot of chili and we still have leftovers, you know, because they've just, you know, the first like two years it was, they would just eat and eat and eat until they were sick. 
Um, and they didn't know, like they didn't, they didn't believe that another meal was going to come, you know? And so for the first like two years, it was like, our meals were huge. And now I tell people all the time, I'm like, we really don't eat as much as you would think we do because now they've kind of calmed down and realized like, well, I don't have to eat five bowls of chili because there will be food in the morning, you know, um, which has been great for our grocery budget. (laughs) I know what you're talking about there. (laughs) At one point, I think we had three teen boys in the house. Oh man. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. There's no keeping up with that. There's just, there's no way. Yeah, we've got a, a, a discount grocery store not far from us, and they they would see us coming with two carts at a time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you're a parent of teens when you you get used to other people trying to hurry to get in front of you in line because you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. holy cow! <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I've tried to figure out all the ways to you know not. I used to take all the kids grocery shopping with me when they were you know when we first got them, and um. So we would have two carts. Yeah, this was before Tram was walking. So we had two carts that had just kids in them. I had two of my younger girls and my two younger boys were in two carts. And then I had two of the older kids, which I say older, they were like 10 and 9, pushing those kids around. And then I would baby wear the youngest one. And I would be pushing a cart with groceries. And then one more kid would be pushing the other cart with groceries. So we were four carts deep walking through aisles, getting groceries because I just had to contain the younger ones in carts just to get through the store. Um, yeah, we're past those days now because I have old enough teens now that can watch the kids like go grocery shopping. <laughs> That's a blessing. <laughs> this yeah. yes. Teens have their own struggles, but when they can watch kids so you can yes. hear that's an amazing it's great. thing. You know, well, and, <laughs> and we haven't really discussed it, but we talked just before we started recording here. And so listeners have kind of a, a feel for what we're talking about here. Um, today, you have a three-year-old, seven-year-old, eight, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, and a 17-year-old. Yep. My gosh, do you not hit like pretty much all of the developmental stages and those difficult places for kids somewhere along that line. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, you know, you would think that you would, I guess maybe not, maybe I just thought this. I thought that, you know, we'll deal with each stage in the order that the kids go, if that makes any sense. So, you know, my 15 year old will, will deal with, you know, moody teenager starting to date, situation with her and then you know we'll deal with preteen boys and all of their hormones and their like fight or flight response I'll deal with that with this one who's the older but they're all out of whack like you know my my 13 year old is not in the same maturity level as my 12 year old you know and so my 12 year old has kind of jumped him as far as the maturity level and then my 15 year old is way more mature than my 17 year old. And, you know, then you go down the line and I've got my seven year old Noah. He is, he just grade accelerated. He skipped a grade and went into third grade and his older brother, though, the eight year old, we had to hold him back this year. So he's still in second grade, but he's about to be nine. And my seven year old just jumped to third grade because he grade accelerated so they're all kind of just out of whack. Nobody really, you know, I'm not hitting the stages that I thought I would hit at the time I would hit. 
And so I'm not getting as much practice with the stages as I would like before <laughs> the next one comes. Yeah. So especially with the girls, like, and my 15 year old is so easy. She's so, she's like, she's so much easier than I would have anticipated, but I know that's not going to be the case with the other ones. And so I don't feel like I'm getting enough like practice in for those ones. Well, you know, with, with that many kids coming in from that many different places, you're bound to have some special needs in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So do you have, yeah. do you have a bunch of, you know, a lot of special needs or diagnoses or things like that that you're dealing with as well? Yeah. Well, that's actually, um, something that's been both a blessing and a, and a curse, so to speak. Um, we've had a couple of situations we didn't know, <laughs> and I'm sure so many people can relate to this. Uh, we were not told that any of our kids had diagnoses when we were visiting with them. We assumed because, you know, in foster care, they just kind of throw diagnoses at kids constantly um, and throw medications at kids. Um, And so we assumed that some of them were ADHD. We could kind of see the ADHD in a couple of them. Um, But we didn't know that any of them were even on medications until the day that they were moving in with us. And they handed us this giant cardboard box full of medications. And we were like, okay, uh, I need to go look all these up and figure out what these are for. So I did. I Googled all of the medications to try and figure out what, what is this for? Why are they taking it? Because nothing was in their medical histories. Their med- First of all, their medical histories were a joke because it was like a, a, an inch thick for seven children. It just, it was a joke. Um, and so I ended up having to go through all these medications. Well, one of my, my 13 year old is severe ADHD. So he is still medicated. Um, but we, I think we were hitting a pretty good spot with him right now because he is starting to mature and I think he's starting to grow out of it quite a bit. Um, but he was severe ADHD. And so he's always been on medication, but as long as we monitor that, it's pretty good. Um, my, the one under him, my 12 year old, Jason, he was apparently diagnosed at like six with bipolar disorder, which is absurd. Um, and they had him on an adult dosage of trileptol, which is a seizure medication that they use for bipolar disorder. And he was on a ridiculous amount of this stuff. And we were told, don't mess with that. Don't touch it. Just give it to him at this time. Trust me, you don't want to tweak it. Like, he gets crazy. And we were having, like, severe outbursts with him. I mean, he would, like, rip apart a room. He would throw dressers. I mean, it was like... And then he would take off and run. And so we were having so many behavior problems, but we knew that, that they were having the same issues at the children's home with him. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, something's not, something is not in the right spot. Either this is the wrong medication or this is the wrong diagnosis or something is not right. And it took a year and a half for me to finally man up, I'm going to say, because I should have done it way sooner. But man up and say, we got to do something different. And it actually took him running away and it took three cops to hold this little, man, he was like eight or nine. He was little eight or nine took three cops to get him in the house because he was so like outraged and out of control. And that was the final straw for me. I'm like, something is not right. And so I, shouldn't have done this and don't do this. But 
I took him off of the medication and weaned him off slowly of that trileptal. And it was like night and day. I mean, he was a completely different child. So sweet, so compassionate, loves kids, never been on anything ever since then. It was like the craziest thing I've ever seen. And he has never needed to be medicated since then. And he is a, he is one of my, he's the one that's way mature compared to the older ones above him. Um, and he sh- he's the sweetest kid. But that medication was doing something that was just sending him on these rages where he just could not control himself. Um, so we had that. And then my, the youngest in the sibling group, who's eight, he's about to be nine, James, um, we believe that there's fetal alcohol syndrome there. Um, he was never diagnosed because um, their biological mom was an illegal immigrant. And so she used um, lots of illegal identities. When she gave birth, all my kids came with like several different last names. Um, and so we don't think she ever got, not only, we're pretty positive. She never got the care that he needed after his birth to get that diagnosis. But we know that there was a lot of alcohol and possibly drugs introduced in utero. And so we believe he has fetal alcohol syndrome, but to get it diagnosed now is just, it's really difficult. Um, Cause it's something they usually would do, you know, when they're born. So he is really struggling with um, processing, uh, like visual processing. And so we, he's in speech therapy. We're working on his IEP. Um, he's the one that we held back, you know, last year. And we're actually potentially going to have to get him uh, evaluated again to be either held back again or put into a special education program because he's still not ready to move forward into third grade because he still can't read and he still can't process. Um, and so those are the only two crazy things that we've had. Um, but we did have another situation where um, in 2019, where my son developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, no, which is a, that one. yeah, what it, is that? So Guillain-Barre is a autoimmune disorder where your body, um, you'll get a common day virus, which he got like a stomach bug and that stomach bug triggered this reaction in his body that, uh, what it does is it creates, um, so your, your nerves have insulation on them, right. To help them conduct, you know, the signals that they need from your brain to your extremities. And this autoimmune disorder, your body starts attacking that insulation. And so he it started with just tingling in his hands and feet. Um, and then he couldn't feel his hands and he couldn't feel his feet. Then he couldn't walk. Then he couldn't feed himself. And it, it slowly paralyzes you basically from your feet up. Um, and it was the craziest thing we've ever experienced because we'd never heard of it. You know, it's not something we'd ever even seen. Um, and we weren't even sure if he needed to be seen by a doctor, but then thankfully just by people who mentioned stuff, we went to the emergency room and they had to do a spinal tap and all sorts of stuff. And, um, and they diagnosed him with Guillain-Barre and he was actually really, really lucky. Most people end up getting paralyzed and have to have a breathing tube, um, because it just keeps working its way up. And, uh, but we were able to catch it pretty quickly and get the IVIG um, treatment that he needed in order to stop it. 
Um, and then it's just a matter of letting your body kind of rebuild that insulation. And so uh, we were in the hospital for 11 days and then it took him probably about six months before he could walk without a walker um, again. Uh, he was in a wheelchair for a while, um, had to kind of learn to feed himself, had to kind of learn to, it was all, it was a whole weird, it was weird. It was crazy. Um, and so uh Thankfully, it's something that, you know, hopefully he won't ever have a regression or a, a not a regression, but a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, I can't think of the word, but it shouldn't come back again. It should just be a one and done thing. He will always have that in his system, but it shouldn't be triggered again. Um, but with all this COVID stuff, we've had mixed opinions that people say, oh, it could cause it to come back. So kind of been extra you know extra diligent with that just so we don't have to go through that again but um but yeah that was just like a fluke thing it was really weird that must have been an extremely stressful time it wasn't fun it was not fun my husband had to take off work to watch the kids so that I could stay in the hospital with him um and then just being in a hospital for 11 days I just feel for people who have to sit there you know in the hospital I mean it's just not my kids really missed him and, you know, they weren't, they, they were able to visit a few times, but um, it was also just really overwhelming for him because he was just so tired all the time. And, um, and for the kids to kind of see him like that was kind of rough. And, um, but yeah, it wasn't fun, but thankfully, he, you know, he, he didn't, he had a light case, um, very mild case. So um, very grateful for that. How did that have affect the oldest since she was used to being mama bear did that kind of throw her back into that role so she when all of this happened she was at a military camp um a military school i guess you could call it program called yca youth challenge academy um and she was there when all of this happened and so she wasn't able to really get much of an update um we did because they, they weren't allowed to receive phone calls or anything while they're there. Um, it's like a six-month program that's supposed to help troubled teens. And so she was there, and um, they don't get phone calls or anything. And so we called the school and just let them know what was going on so that she was aware in case we needed to pull her for any reason. But um, she really wasn't here for that. So the only the time it really kind of she got a glimpse of it was when we went up to visit her for her graduation ceremony um not the graduation it was a family day that's what it was it was a family day and he was still using um his walker at that point and so she kind of got to see like how it's been going basically um and it she definitely was upset about it but um but it, it wasn't anything that like I think she was just really, you know, she was really trying to focus on herself and, and, you know, the Youth Challenge Academy. And she really enjoyed that program. So I think she was more focused on that, which was good. That's what we wanted. We were actually conflicted about whether we were even going to contact and let her know because we wanted her to focus. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think that wasn't too difficult for her. I think it was more difficult for the kids who were home and kind of had to deal without me for 11 days. And then when he was home, you know, we... PT, we had physical therapy constantly and, um, you know, just, it was, it was, it was interesting. We had to move his room to downstairs cause he couldn't go upstairs yet. And, 
um, that was more of an adjustment for the kids who were here, really. You guys have been through a lot with these seven kids. And if I remember right, just a few months after you brought them into your home, you adopted another infant on top of that. Yeah, yeah. So we um, we had the – so we had my biological son. Um, and then after he turned a year old, we started the adoption process again. And that's when we got the phone call for the seven. We brought the seven home. And then a couple months before we were supposed to finalize their adoption, we were approached by a birth mom who was living with my parents, one of the girls that was living with my parents. And she asked if we would adopt the baby. And um, obviously I wanted to, because I would love to have another baby, but we hadn't finalized our adoption yet. And so we didn't want to mess anything up. So we told her, well, we really can't right now, but I'd love to help you find a family. I know tons of families who are looking to adopt. So let me, let's, let's find somebody. So um, we, I'm, I introduced her to a few families and nothing ever really stuck. Um, just nothing really felt comfortable for her. And then we finalized the adoption of the seven. And one day we went to the zoo and she came along with us and her and my husband talked the entire time and we got done at the zoo and he was like, we're supposed to adopt that baby. And I was like, you don't got to tell me twice. I want a baby. Let's do it. <laughs> And so I ended up being able to go to the rest of her appointments and um, I actually birthed her and uh, cut her cord. And, um, and so we, we have had her, technically we've had her since birth. She had to spend three months in Florida with my parents because ICPC, um, she had to stay there until we could get the paperwork to go through for her to come to Georgia. But thankfully it's only like a 30 minute drive. So we were able to go and see her regularly, but she had to stay in Florida until we could get that paperwork that said that she could come to Georgia. Um, and so, uh, she moved in with us at about three months. And so we've had her since then. And we have an incredible relationship, um, with her mom. Uh, she's aunt Laura to all my kids and she, she'll take her and her husband who her husband's fantastic. Um, they'll take my, you know, they moved away recently, but before that they'll take my kids out. They'll take, you know, one to go get pedicures or they'll take the boys and go take them to go play baseball or, you know, take them out to go have dinner or, or whatever, you know, and, and they are always involved with her, with Troy Ann. And, um, we actually have, I have a great relationship with Troy Ann's biological grandmother, um, her dad's mom. And so I talked to her, probably twice a week and we send pictures and she sends her gifts and um, we've done FaceTime videos. So we have a really, really, really awesome uh, birth mother relationship. Um, and we've kind of just always been, you know, there for each other. And um, they're actually trying to, her and her husband are trying to start a family now. And so I get to be, you know, aunt to her kid. And, and so it's just a really, really rare and really great relationship. Yeah, that's really awesome. I do have yeah. to say though, I think we I need to have your husband talk to my husband about babies because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would probably my take another baby. <laughs> see, I would take another one, and my husband's like, "No, nah, I'm good." Now that we had her, he wanted a girl. When we found out we were pregnant with my son, um, he wanted a girl really, really bad. In fact, when we found out it was a boy, he kind of 
had like a, a moment of disappointment on his face <laughs> before he realized that he was making that face. And so he fixed it real quick, but he always wanted a little girl. And um, so he, even though we didn't know that she was a girl at the time when we were at the zoo and he decided that that was our baby, he didn't know, we didn't know that she was a girl yet. We hadn't done a gender scan and he was like, no, it's a girl and her name's going to be Troy Ann because that's the name he picked out way back when. And uh, we didn't think he was going to be right, but he was right. It was a girl. And so that that fulfilled it for him. He wanted a little baby girl because um, he never got to go through like the baby stage with a girl. But now he's like, mm, I'm over babies now. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> well, I'm good. I have to ask, it sounds like you guys have an amazing community around you of people. Not only parents and and bio parents and grandmothers and aunts and uncles and just a huge collection of people around you. Mm -hmm. But what about that foundation where you guys start from? You know, you and your husband. How 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 have you guys seen this really affect your relationship? Is has it been a strengthening effect, or has it caused troubles in it? Because that's that's one of the places I think we're all a little bit scared of when you step in. Yeah, I think, um, not I think, uh, we definitely really struggled, I would say, was it last year? No, it was 2019. I keep reading what year we're in. Um, that was a really, really, really rough year for us. Um, we were dealing with all this stuff with my oldest, and she was really putting us through the ringer. And um, I mean, that that really hurt our marriage. Um, just the stress of it, you know, she... It, was making home life really miserable. Um, and we had to be super careful with, um, my husband being alone with her because she had made some false accusations and we had CPS reports and stuff that she had filed on my husband. And so we just had to be really careful. Um, and that added extra stress because I was always stuck going, taking her to this appointment or that appointment. And, you know, she didn't like me. And so then it was, you know, I'm stuck in a car with her. And, um, so that really tested our marriage. Um, but once we got through that year, I, we are so much stronger now than we were at the beginning of this. I mean, it's definitely been a learning curve, but, um, it's, it's something that we're, we're definitely growing in. Um, the new thing definitely has been that he is working, um, as a hotshot driver now. So he's gone from three to five weeks at a time. And so, and then he comes home for about a week. So that's been a new adjustment, um, because he's not here for a while. So, um, handling all of this without him can kind of be rough. And then when he's home, you know, we kind of have to get back into the routine of him being in charge and me, you know, taking a break. And, um, so that's been a whole adjustment of its own as well. And then me starting work back up as a bus driver, adding that to it. And, um, yeah, it's just been a lot of periods of adjustment, I think. And you have to make sure that you keep your marriage a priority. You know, you have to do date nights. You have to make sure that you're both communicating, um, about every, you know, about everything, you know, even with him on the road, I talk to him several times a day and we just make sure, you know, even with all this COVID thing that started happening in the house and, you know, he, he'll, you know, how's the kid feeling? Okay. They, do they still have a fever? Okay. Did you get my ibuprofen? You know, he's still trying to stay as much involved as he can, even being far on the road. And, um, especially with my older boys, they really, you know, they really respect him and they really, 
thrive being around him. And so whenever I'm really struggling with one of them, I'll just be like, you need to talk to your son because he doesn't want to listen to me right now. So, and he will, he'll get on the phone with him. Hey dude, what's going on? Why are you, why are you being a butthead? You know, which what's the problem? Um, and then once they talk to him, they're good. Oh no, never. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Probably even several times a day. That must be really difficult for you to, you know, you're home all the time. How do you get a break? How do you decompress? Decompressing. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you for that one. Um, As far as getting a break, I really do try and get a break as much as possible um, when my husband's home. Um, I, I even like at like the first day or two that he's home, I'll just kind of hang out in my room and read a book just to kind of, you know, one, let the kids get that reset with him. And then for me to be able to kind of, you know, bring my mind back down um, and just get a minute to not have a kid interrupting me every two seconds. Um, but I'm sure all of you can relate that even when he's home, they'll walk right past him to come find me in my room and ask me a question. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> so, I mean, but honestly, I'm not much of a, I like to read. So that's, I think the biggest thing that I do is, you know, get away with a book for a little bit. Um, but my kids are really, are really easy. So I don't have too many challenges so far with, you know, feeling like chaos has ensued. Um, this COVID thing has been the most chaotic thing that's happened so far because we're all stuck in the house and can't go anywhere. Um, (laughs) but I mean, uh, you're right. But I mean, other than that, it's, it's, you know, it hasn't been too bad. Sorry, go ahead. No, go go ahead. baby. I was just going to ask, um, you know, how has all of this affected your biological child? Yeah. Uh, so he, like I said, we had, we had him first. Um, sorry. Um, we had him first. And so he was three when we first, when the rest of the kids moved in. And so he was still the youngest um, at that time. And um, so that was kind of good because he still kind of got to be the baby, so to speak. Um but for him, I think the hardest thing has been his love language is touch, whereas the rest of my kids, that is not their love language, which makes complete sense um, regarding, you know, where their upbringing and whatnot. Um, and so for him, it's been hard because he likes to snuggle and he likes to, you know, lay on the couch with us and stuff. And so trying to make that time for him, but also not make it seem like there's favoritism or you know, or anything like that. And so that's been the biggest struggle for him is getting that snuggle time in because that's his thing. Um, but other than that, he loves it. He, you know, people will ask him all the time how he likes having so many and he loves having all the siblings. Um, so it's been a pretty, a pretty easy and positive uh, thing for him. Yeah. There's nothing like those little ones when they want to snuggle, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's seven now, but yeah, he's still very much so. You know, he would snuggle all day long if I could. Yeah, we, we have a godson who comes over and hangs out a few days a week with us. And and that one wants nothing more than to sit on your lap and play and, and just have a good time. And if you happen to have a, a large beard, he wants to grab a hold of it and hang off of it as well. 
um, <clears throat> I might know something about that. Right, right. I don't, I don't think I have any nerve endings left there, but that's okay. <laughs> he's not the first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Well, I have a couple of questions I like to ask people. Sure. Um, you know, the foster care system is not perfect. Adoption system is not perfect. If you had a magic wand, you could just wave and fix one part of the system. What would you change? Wow. <laughs> um, my husband and I always say that the reason why the foster care system has been become such a terrible uh, necessity is because it is it, it was it is now run by the government, whereas it was originally built to be run by the church and run by the people of the church. And so we have always believed that if the church would take its responsibility back um, and run things like they were supposed to when it first started, um, I think a lot of the issues would would go away. Um, you wouldn't have a lot of the political garbage, so to speak, um, in the system. But with that being said, if the churches won't stand, you know, stand up and do something, then it's not going to get any better. Um, and that's something that we've always had a huge heart for is, you know, getting the church, you know, for instance, we, we attend a church that is, has six campuses. It's a pretty big church and there are 10,000 ish members between the campuses. And we have calculated out that if one in every, I want to say it's one in every 500 people would, foster yeah would foster a child in foster care in our in just our church which there are several mega churches in our area um if just one in every 500 families would foster a kid we would be able to wipe out our state's foster care system and it's like you know that kind of a number it's like how is that not doable I, you know what i mean i don't understand why that's not doable Oh, I agree. Um, and if you're not careful, you'll get me preaching on that topic because <laughs> for years, me too. <laughs> all the political leanings left or right, I don't care where you're at. We, we, yeah. we could take all the problems out of that if the churches were, were to stand up and take care of people who need help. And, yeah, that's what and do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that's whether we're talking foster care, um, just family services, welfare. Yeah. Uh, if the churches would put in enough effort to outwork the government, which shouldn't be hard. No. <laughs> we, we could easily get rid of those systems and do a much yeah. better, more efficient job of it. And so, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to stop there. So I don't start to preach on it. I, look, <laughs> I get it. I do constantly, you know, people stop me and, and, you know, you get all those questions all the time while you're, well, I'm sure you guys do too, with your family being, you know, bigger, you know, you get all those questions all the time of, you know, what, you know, what causes this or that, which what you said is exactly the same thing I say. I say, yes, lots of paperwork, <laughs> lots of paperwork. Um, and I, and I, but I always tell people, I always use this as an opportunity to say, you know, there's such a need just in our own country that there should be no reason why, you know, that we can't make a difference if our churches would just step up and do what they're supposed to do. And thankfully our church has been doing an incredible job. They actually launched an initiative called foster compassion. Um, they launched that two years ago 
And they have made that their full, almost their full-time priority um, of uh, they do impact classes. They have um, support groups for foster parents where everybody has a circle of people that surrounds one foster family. Um, And then they provide services and meals to foster families every week and just a whole bunch of initiatives that they've, that they've kind of ramped up and trying to get more foster parents out of our church. Uh, not out of our church, but create more foster parents in our church. Um, and so they've started this initiative called Foster Compassion. Um, and it's really, it's been an incredible thing to watch because it's something that for years, my husband and I have just been like, you know, like you said, you just how these numbers don't add up. They don't add up. How is it possible that you can have all these churches and all these people who claim to, you know, want to do God's word and then all these kids that are without families, it just doesn't add up. So that would be my magic wand, um, taking it out of the government's hands and putting it back into the church's hands where it belongs. I'm with you hundred percent there. Um, what do you wish people knew? What's, what's one thing you wish people knew about you guys' journey that you think they totally don't get? One that big families are normal. Well, quote unquote, normal. Again, we use that term very loosely in this house. Um, big families are not, we're not any different than your family. You know, yeah, we, you know, we have a bigger van, you know, yeah, we might eat a little bit more food, but other than that, I mean, we're not, you know, we believe the same things that, you know, you do about, you know, mom, dad, brother, sis, you know, um, big families are, are no different than your family. We might be a little bit louder, but even then, you know, you get a couple kids together and it gets obnoxious. So, um, but I always tell people that I'm like, you know, don't think that just because I have a bunch of kids, I can't, you know, put a meal together and bring it by your house or, you know, that we can't come and help and pray, you know, pray with you or that, you know, we can't go to the zoo with you guys, you know, or whatever, just our family is just like any other family. You know, we're not, we're not crazy. We're not, um, we're not little house on the prairie. I don't know. You know, people ask us all the time if we're Mormon or Catholic or, you know, all sorts of things. Um, nothing wrong with that, but we're like, no, we're just, you know, normal family that just likes to have kids in the house all the time. So, um, but that and, and also just, um, I, I really struggle with people who, when they hear our story or if they when they hear that I have nine kids, they're always like, Oh, you know, bless your heart or, you know, which is the Southern phrase. <laughs> You're an idiot. Um, but, I grew you know, up for a couple of years in the South. I know bless your heart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I get that a lot. Um, but also, you know, just people who's, who say just the craziest things. And, um, and I always tell people just educate, you know, don't, you know, my husband's great about coming up with like witty responses, <laughs> to people. And I'm like, I just, just educate, you know, I teach my kids just educate, you know, my daughter had an experience. Um, this is back in December at school. These kids were making a jokes about abortion and, um, she, they were saying that it's better to abort than for your kid to go into foster care. And so she was really struggling with that. And she was trying to talk to them to educate them. And they wouldn't listen to her. And so she was, she was really struggling with that. And she was trying to just educate them. She wasn't trying to condemn them about anything or tell them they were terrible or, you know, whatever. 
She was just trying to educate them. And, you know, being from the foster care system, who better to speak on that? And so she was trying to tell them, you know, not all foster care is bad and not all foster parents are bad and adoption is great. And I was adopted and they just wouldn't listen to her. And they were saying really, I don't even know the polite way of saying stupid um, things, (laughs) stupid things. And, you know, so she came home in tears because she's like, I just wanted to educate them. It's not that I wanted them to necessarily agree with me or believe what I believe, but I just wanted them to listen and to allow me to at least tell my story, you know, and I always tell people just educate, 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 you know, educate people about when they see a family that's blended, you know, we're, we're a blended family. I have my, the siblings are seven, they're Mexican and the seven siblings. And then my little blonde hair, biological one is blonde, pale, And then the youngest one is actually Ukrainian. Her mom came from Ukraine, was adopted from the Ukraine. Um, And so, you know, we're a very blended family. And my brothers, I have two black brothers and then one who's apparently mulatto, but he looks Cuban. It really doesn't make sense. But um, so we're a very blended family. And people always have just the weirdest things that they say. And they're saying them in front of their kids. And it's like, that's not educating your kids properly, you know, that's teaching them to, you know, to, to react before they think about it, you know, cause if you looked at my family at first, you'd be like, that's weird. That doesn't make sense. But instead of just saying that or asking a snide, you know, asking a snide question, you could be like, man, can you really, can you explain to me how your family became to be this, you know, this diverse and, you know, something just instead of saying your husband must be really dark or, you know, well, geez, that's, that's a really mixed, you know, bag of nuts or, you know, all, all sorts of things. Um, you know, my, my friend had an experience at Walmart the other day where she has, she's a foster mom who just adopted and she has two, um, African-American little boys. And then her, the rest of her kids are, you know, white and they were all acting kind of crazy at the checkout. And, a lady looked over and said to her daughter, you know, looked at her daughter and pointed to my friend and said, that's what happens when you mix races. And it's like, like you're teaching that to your daughter. So now she's going to continue on with the, again, don't have polite way of saying stupidity um, because you're teaching her to see things that way. Um So yeah, anyways, long story. I'm sorry, long response, but (laughs) education, education is is the thing, you know, and I know that you guys are doing an incredible job with, with that, with what you guys are doing with the podcast. And and that's huge. Yeah. That's part of what we do because we, we understand that, that journey as well. Yeah. We're a biracial family family and people, Mm -hmm. you know, we get the looks and, and there's comments here and there. You know, but it it almost, you know, when we go out, it kind of looks like a his and a hers because my husband's darker and I'm nice and pale. So we have some that are pale and we have some that are mixed and Mm -hmm. we do get a lot of, a lot of looks and normally just me, you know, he doesn't get it so much. And I don't know if it's just because he's big and he's scary. My husband's the same way. But yeah, yeah, I get it more when I'm yeah. out with the kids. I think know. I'm just able to look people in the eye and exude hate a little bit easier. <laughs> and they don't. Yeah, he nothing. does too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've played that one, my, that card a time or two. So yeah. I wanted to ask one more question. You have this big support group around you. Yeah. A lot of people helping you guys, you know, kind, kind of reaching into your family. Mm-hmm. But 
what when you when you're talking to the to the general public, to people you know, to friends or coworkers, what does support look like for your family? What does support look like for our family? Um, I think mostly it's it's people understanding where our passion and our heart comes from. I mean, you know, like you like you said, we could preach all day. You know, I could you know, you put me on a stage to talk about this, I'll go for hours. Um, because we just have such a passion for it. And so for us, it's, you know, as far as like with coworkers and stuff, you know, especially with my job, they've been really great about understanding that like when we're going through everything with my oldest, you know, um, understanding that, Hey, you know, I just kind of need a couple days to get the house back in order because we're going through kind of chaos and we've had the cops here every other day and, you know, kind of thing. Um, but as far as like my family, you know, the support we get from my family, it's, it, that's priceless. I mean, we have, for instance, this week with, you know, the whole COVID situation, um, I needed Chromebooks for my kids to, um, do their schooling while they're on quarantine. And so, but I can't go to the school to pick them up. So uh, my mom drove up here from Jacksonville and grabbed the Chromebooks and dropped them off. And, um, I actually, oh. Oh, sorry. Sorry, got interrupted again. Um, I actually had, uh, I have a family that's from our church that's stopping by this afternoon to drop some stuff off and um, just kind of help us with this. Um, I have amazing friends, two amazing friends who um, have kind of been through there through all these crazy things. And for them, it looks like Hey, I can you just come over here so I can cry for a little bit in my room? You know, can you just come over and watch the kids so I can just go boohoo for a little bit in my room? Um, or hey, can you just take these kids so that I can get these kids calmed down for a little bit? You know, and they'll take a couple of the kids with them so I can get the ones that are going off, you know, kind of calm down before we bring the kids back. You know, um, all sorts of stuff. I mean, the, the situation with. Um, with my oldest has been the most challenging thing I've ever been through in my life. Um, but it's been great to have my mom and dad who've been through pretty crazy situations themselves, um, there to kind of not only be a voice of reason, but also, you know, I can look at how they've handled the situation with my brothers and be like, okay, okay, that's a good idea. Maybe we'll try that, you know, and being able to call them and be like, Hey, what would you do? You know, what, what should I do? This kid keeps stealing Chromebooks from school what should I do? You know, um, we have a punching bag in our garage because my dad was like, get a punching bag. Your, your boys are getting to the age where they're getting angry. Get a punching bag. We have um, one of those. We've got one of those yeah. <laughs> and a, a yeah. big weight set. You know, they've got to have a way to express themselves. Yeah. So that's really awesome yeah. that you have a lot of people in your life we that do. you can draw experience from and that understand, because I know that too often a lot of us foster and adoptive parents, we just feel so isolated. Yeah. Like there's nobody that understands. So it's yeah. really awesome that you have a lot of people, especially your parents, you know, because yeah. it sounds like you're really close with your parents. Mm-hmm. So that's really awesome. Yeah. 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 I do. Know, I know some families who, you know, unfortunately have not had the same experience with their, even with their, like you said, with their parents and their own family you know, that don't support their decision to foster. And that's really difficult because, you know, when you have a heart for it and you have a calling for it, you know, that you're supposed to do it. And even when it's really challenging and then to have family or, or, you know, friends who say, 
you know, something difficult comes up and then they say, well, you know, you kind of asked for it, you know, or this is what you signed up for or, or just give it back. Yeah. uh, Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I couldn't imagine doing this without having support, especially from my parents, you know, that's, that's been huge. Just, you know, like I said, especially during this really challenging time with, um, my oldest has definitely been, like I said, the most trying thing I've ever been through. So, um, having that them there to guide us has been great. That's amazing. Well, Jessica, I want to thank you for coming and talking to us and telling your story today, because my gosh, do you guys have like just a ton of experience and, and have gained, you know, all kinds of wisdom and sharing it with people is, is the best thing we can do. Once we've, once we've fought through these battles, we've had these struggles. It's a shame to waste it and not share it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want, I want to just want to make sure we said thank you for, for being so open and honest and talking with us. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay. Foster care nation. Thank you for listening to Jessica's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can also connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always... You are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks.